Welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. My name's Ali Hill, and as a psychologist, I love asking people questions. And I thought, what better way to do this than to get the people I admire into a studio to share their stories. This podcast is our corner of the world where all of us can dive deep into what it takes to live a standout life. We all know the statistics about businesses who don't last after their first year and plenty who don't make it after five years. With this year marking 20 years in what is now an international business, Adina Jacobs has plenty of lessons and insights to share. Adina is the co-founder of an innovative Australian technology goods company, STM Goods. She launched the company in 1998 in Bondi, Sydney, with the goal of providing people with technical products that are beautiful, durable and functional. The business has doubled in size, tripled in revenue, has offices in Sydney, San Diego, London and Kuala Lumpur. Staying on top of technology changes is not the only thing Adina obsesses about. In fact, her main obsession is relationships. We discuss how critical this has been to building and adopting her brand, as well as how important building a group of people around her to keep her going through the ever-changing business landscape. There are plenty of gems in this fascinating conversation with Adina Jacobs. Adina, welcome to the studio. Thanks, Ali. Thanks for having me here. Great to be sitting down with you. Look, this year marks 20 years that you've been in business and we're going to dive into the business and what it is and how it's grown, how it's evolved over those years. But if you could go back to those first, that first year in business, knowing now what you know, what advice or what would you say to yourself? Oh, that's such a good question. So many things because over 20 years you pick up so many little bits of gold that you know would have helped back in the beginning. I think, you know, it was a very different landscape then to what it is now. This whole idea of being an entrepreneur and starting a business, it 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 maybe we just weren't in the same circles or the right circles, but we didn't have any of the support that I see so readily available now when people look for it. So I think what I would do first of all is find out whether there are really communities of people out there to support you Um, because it was hard going it alone and just trying to figure things out when we had no idea what we were doing. I think we had a lot of enthusiasm and we put that into everything we did and that really came across and that endeared us to people, but we didn't know what we were doing. I mean, I was 23 when I started my business partner, Ethan, was I think 26 or 27 and it was both of our first experiences doing our own thing. So there's a lot out there now and I'm sure there was a lot out there then, but we just had no idea how to access it. So I'd go back and tell myself to see who's out there that can support you and guide you and just act as a bit of a feedback loop. Sometimes that ignorance of the unknown and the energy that comes with that is actually a good thing yes, to get you going. Yes, that's very true. Well. I think if you knew what was ahead, maybe sometimes people wouldn't get into it. I still would, but some people may not. Yeah. So you were a, a fashion accessories buyer, yes. I understand, yes. at the age of 23. And so what prompted yourself and Ethan to to go into business together? Well, Ethan and I were both working for the same company, the same fashion access or fashion. It was like a, a fast fashion company. And he was the IT manager and I was the accessories buyer. And he bought a laptop and couldn't find anything other than that black square briefcase to carry it around in. But that bag didn't suit his personality and it definitely didn't suit, suit his lifestyle. He was a student. He was working full time. He was riding a bike and he really needed a backpack that he could throw all his stuff into, but he couldn't find anything. So he put his laptop in one of those padded envelopes that you buy at the post office and then he put that inside just a normal backpack. And that's what he used as his laptop bag. And he came to me and said, I can't find anything. There have to be more people out there who need this kind of thing. And I understood how to develop product overseas, how to import it, about product design. And together with his idea and my know-how, we just kind of put both of our smarts together and, and developed this range, which at the time was two bags of of laptop bags that were good looking, comfortable to carry and didn't scream out the fact that you were carrying a laptop because of course those bright black briefcases that, <laughs> I mean, they they came the with the laptop. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So this was a good camouflage story as well. And, um, and we started from there. Really interesting because I, I can imagine that the idea of actually going, okay, here's a gap in the market. Mm. Um, but then 
being able to pull that together, was that actually getting someone else to create that for you? Were you actually physically creating that? So we weren't like stitching the product together in the backyard or anything like that. But through my experience as an accessories buyer, I knew how to make product in China. So it was a matter of putting together some ideas and then it was a year process of sampling backwards and forwards and getting the product to the point where we were happy to then place an order. And then um, pulling together some money, I think we each put $7,500 in, which is really nothing when it comes to buying products. I think anybody who runs a product business knows that one of the biggest investments is the product itself. Um, so to start a product business on $15,000 even then was was pretty lucky for us. I think we pulled in a few favours. And um, we also got lucky with a factory who was happy to make 50 units of each colour, which is also unheard of. Now our minimums are between one and 3,000 units per colour. Yeah, I was going to say, what? Mm. how many did you get done? So because... we had 250 backpacks and um, I think it was 100 shoulder bags in that first production run. But funnily enough, little quirky things happened like we forgot to tell them to put zip pulls on so you couldn't open any of the pockets. So uh, before we shipped out every bag, we'd sit there in the garage. My dad's garage was our warehouse and we'd put on six zip pulls on each bag and then ship it out. So There's the moment yeah, of stitching. Yeah. That we, <laughs> That's it, exactly. That's There's always some sort of like hands-on right. moment to get it out yep. the door. Yeah, yep. We're putting the beers on, everyone's yep. coming around, we're That's helping right. out. Exactly. So what did you do with those 250? We So we thought that we had a really great idea and that as soon as anybody heard it, that they'd jump on board and think that it was fantastic and why hasn't anyone done this before? So we tried to sell the product on the idea and on some photos of samples and nobody was really interested. So we thought, okay, let's just get the first 250 units. We both lived in Bondi. We thought, worst case scenario, we'll just take them down to Bondi markets and sell them and just make our money back. Um, but really when we got the product in and got it into people's hands, that was what made people understand how valuable an idea it was and how much better it was than lugging around this heavy, pretty ugly, black, briefcase style bag. So the first, out of the first 350 units and the 250 bags and the 100 shoulder bags, we got a lot of them into journalist hands. Um, I spent a lot of time on the phone trying to convince people to just take a bag and try it out and see what they thought of it. Um, and we spent a lot of time, I remember we, we spent a lot of time on the floor with the phone book, the yellow pages because this was pre back in the day yeah I mean it was it wasn't pre-internet but it was pre our common use of the internet mm, and the way that you did your Google. research yeah, yeah you you went to the library and you and you looked in the yellow pages so we made a list of all the luggage stores and all the computer resellers and we basically just door knocked and, and were you looking for key um key people that could actually share that message? Well, we figured that the people who were selling the laptops were the people who would also be able to sell the accessories that went with them. But the stumbling block that we had was that all PCs came with this cheapy bag. And so the people who were buying the laptops didn't want to spend more money on another bag. Uh, and that was a big, like a first big stumbling block for us. Um, and then what actually happened was that we hit on the Apple market where they didn't come with a bag and people were spending more money on their laptop than the standard PC user was. And at that time as well, this was also pre-iPod, pre-iPhone, pre-iPad, um, that the people who were using Macs were a lot more creative. They were the architects and the graphic designers and the people in advertising. And just luck for us that they cared more about the bag that they carried and the type of accessories that they used. And so this fit in really well with that market. And so we formed a lot of relationships around that Apple reseller network. It was also pre-Apple retail stores in Australia. And so we were dealing with these independent stores who sold Apple computers and all the software that went with them and then all the accessories that, that went with that lifestyle as well. Huge insight into actually going, okay, that, that yeah. didn't quite work. And but that's followed right. through for us all the way. We're still very focused on what Apple does as as their product range. I mean, we do a lot of work around the PC market now as well because it's opened up a lot. Um, but we predominantly, I mean, we're very well known for our iPad cases and we sell them in the Apple retail stores globally. So that's, you know, for us, hooking on to the Apple market early was a really big win for us. Imagine that match between function and form that yeah. something needs to be designed beautifully, which yes. is, again, what Apple's known about. Yeah. But it has this functionality yeah. that, that absolutely you can do what it needs to do. Did that inform the next lot of design as well? well? For us, the product design has always been about thoughtful design. And to me, as I, I had product for the business, it is always about understanding how people use their devices and how they go about their day. 
creating features that support that and make things easy for them and then building the product as a shell around that. So when you open a bag on the inside, it's the protection of the device. It's how you pack all your stuff in there. It's making sure that it's not too heavy and it's comfortable on your shoulders or comfortable on your hand if it's a a brief style bag. And then you create the shell around that, which is beautiful materials, the right kind of zippers, the webbing that looks good and that functions well, and creating the whole package that looks good that people are going to be proud to carry. But it's not just on the outside, it's also what's on the inside that makes a big difference. And that to me is what the essence of thoughtful design is. That's a big part of your brand as well. Yeah, so your the name of the business is STM, yes. which I understand for stuff that matters. It's It's gone through a few different generations. Yeah. So the, the registered business name, name is Standard Technical Merchandise. Ah. Um, and we've always been known as STM. STM is stuff that matters. It is um, smarter than most. I mean, putting that thoughtful design into things really takes it up a notch and makes it smarter than the average product that you see around. Uh, and that's that's important to us, very important. We don't just want to produce another product that sits alongside everything else. It has to be smarter. It has to be more functional. It has to actually enhance the user's experience of it. And looking through your website, because you talk about that and, mm. and the, you almost the story of it as it stands now. And in particular, you talk about this, we, we do it for generation do. Yes. This is the generation that get things done, yeah. who get into action and and they're out there doing the work. Yeah. And we want to be supporting them in doing that. Definitely. How important is it for a business to have a vision like that, that they're basing their product, particularly a product-based business, where it could be become about the product, but it's actually bigger than that? Well, to me, it's always about the people. And to us as a business, it's always about the relationships. And one of the things that we pride ourselves on almost above the product is our relationships, making sure that we're a great partner, whether it's to our customers, to our suppliers, to the people that we work with, we want to be a really great partner and in a great relationship. And so the product supports that. And I'm proud of our product and I know we do good quality product that works well, but I'm way more proud of the relationships that we build and being a part of the communities that we're a part of. And the product supports all of that. Is that part of your DNA? Yes, definitely. So relationships really matter. Yeah, really matter. Quality assurance, I imagine, is really critical in yes. in the kind of product and particularly when you're talking about technology, if it's not actually going to be protecting the technology yeah. that it's, it's saying it does. You mentioned before we um, jumped on to Mike that you've had some, some really interesting stories about mm. consumers that have yes. used the product in very different ways. Yes. Tell me a little bit about that. So I think they were trying to use the products in the normal ways that we recommend it being used, but they just went down a different path. So we, we're always very open and we really encourage people to come back to us with feedback and tell us what their experiences are like because, you know, we have some good ideas and we've got amazing people working with us, but we're not out there all the time experiencing everything that everyone experiences with the product. So everyone out there, they're our eyes and ears and they help us like feedback and then make the product better and make the business better. So we get some really interesting um, feedback emails. So one in particular I can think of is, um, so there was a guy who had his iPad in one of our iPad cases and it was sitting on the front seat of his car and he got into an accident and his car spun and then flipped and slid along the road. And I think it slid like 20 or 30 metres and he was pinned to the side of the car and just by coincidence, his shoulder was, um, the glass broke in the window and his shoulder was basically like running along the Mm. road Mm. and the only thing protecting his arm from being completely shredded was the iPad because during the spin and the flip, his iPad and in the case had like tumbled over into the car and landed in between him and the road and so that actually saved his arm. Wow. Yes, which was pretty incredible. (laughs) I know, not intended use, but worked very well for him. And then another... Another funny one we had was um, a couple who had been out for a big night and um, she had put her laptop in one of our laptop sleeves and she'd put the bath on and then fallen asleep and woken up and stepped out of bed and she'd stepped into like 30 or 40 centimetres of water and she said her laptop just floated past in the STM sleeve and then she opened it up and it was completely dry. Now, we never say that our products (laughs) are like totally waterproof um, but it was just interesting that like she had it in there and, I mean, if she hadn't had it in there, it would have been completely waterlogged and she would have lost it. Incredible. it worked well for her at the time. And she's saying not something you're going to do yourself. Yeah, that's right. Don't try this at home. But she did try it at home and it worked out. Yeah, Mm. then you, yeah. 
And they're the kind of stories that connect with other customers yeah. and, and build those kind of relationships Definitely. as well. You So we mentioned before, this is your 20th year in business mm. um, and we all know the statistics around business, those that, you know, it struggles for a business to last a year. Yeah. Um, and, you know, even five years and 10 years can be kind of those those dropping off points. And it's not only a business that's lasted time, but it's also gone through a massive growth yes. um, that I understand as well. Um, somewhere above $10 million yes. kind of business. Yeah. What's been the difference for you in leading or founding um, a business? What's different mm. between, say, a $1 million business and a over $10 million business? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I remember when we first, first started out and our accountant said to us, this is going to be a $1 million business one day. And Ethan and I looked at each other and we're like, no, it's not. That's crazy <laughs> talk. And, um, you know, we've gone through a, a lot of growth over the years and we've, I think, I think one of the differences is um, the ability to see beyond where you're sitting and the are busy churning in it every day. It's unlikely that you're going to get to the next step and the next step and the next step because you're not planning for those changes. Um, the other thing is, and this is where Ethan really shines, is that you need the money to be able to grow, especially in a product business. And he has always been very financially focused as the more creative one of the two of us, like it's not my forte. And so I think the two of, like having two people in the business as founders with very different skill sets has made a huge difference to us. It's really allowed us to push, like if it was just me and, you know, I didn't have access to the money, then I may not know how to get it. And then he has. And so he's known how to manage our financial situation to be able to get us through some difficult times. He may not have been as adventurous on the product side of things. And so I've pushed us through with that and same with marketing and branding. And we've learned a lot from each other over the years, how to kind of push into those areas that you're not so comfortable with. And I think that partnership and that ability to kind of, you know, not always agree with each other, but know that the other one has the best interest of the business at heart allows you to trust and just kind of push through things that you think you may not go to when you're on your own. Imagine it's a really useful tension to be sitting yeah, in at times it is. to go creative versus commercial yeah. and and which one yeah. and how that kind of But sits. I think we've struck a good balance and, you know, we don't always agree on everything but we do agree with what's best for the business and sometimes I trust that it's what he's pushing for and sometimes he trusts that it's what I'm pushing for and in a partnership to be able to have that trust is important. How has your leadership style changed over the years? Well, I didn't have one in the beginning and I think I'm a like pretty friendly and approachable person and sometimes that's to my detriment and look, I can't think of any time that anybody's taken full advantage of it but the experience that we have has definitely allowed us to like sit in the position of being leaders in the business and being influencers in the business and sometimes you can't always be everybody's best friend. You have to do what is best for the business. And it's pushed us to make some hard decisions like letting people go and, and you know, letting collections go that we believe in but have had negative feedback. Um, and I think being a good leader is about knowing when to say yes as much as it is knowing when to say no. Like it's an equal push and pull. Um, I think one of the biggest lessons for us is, is um, has been been cutting things off early. In the past, we would have let things go a lot longer and leadership, like the experience that we've had has kind of allowed us to kind of step up and say, the impact of this not working affects more than just us. It affects so many other people. And so we need to be responsible parents in this business and make a decision that works for everybody, even if we they can't see it right now. And, you know, we have to have the vision to be able to see it. And then back those decisions. Yeah. Uh, does yeah. that come from experience from times? It's a little where bit of experience. It's a little it's a lot of common sense and having the guts just to be able to do it. And I think we are very self-aware. Um, we always look at what we do first and how we've, you know, like if something goes wrong, we don't look outside and say, who can we blame for this? We always look at ourselves first and think, okay, how, what do we learn from this first of all? And how do we then, how do we 
understand what went wrong so that we can hope not to repeat it again. But we never look to like shift the blame. And I think a lot of people do look to shift the blame. And I'm proud of how self-aware we've become over the years. I think that's useful to have a mirror and have mm. someone else to kind of call you out on that. Yeah. How, do you, how have you gone having to make a decision yeah. that may be unpopular? How do you reconcile that for yourself? It's got to be about what's good for the business and for the health of the business. It might not be something that I personally, like there's a lot of decisions that we've made that I know are good for the business and that we may have had to carry out in certain ways from, you know, legal perspectives or something like that, that may be not the way that I would personally manage it. But in order to protect everybody else in the business, there are certain ways that you have to run a business. And so you need, like knowing that, those actions protect the other people that work with us. That helps me reconcile something that I may not do personally myself, just because I'm a pushover in some ways. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. And so I, I find a that responsibility. Yeah, 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 definitely. I mean, it's you know, all the people who work with us rely on us to feed and educate their families, to pay their rent. And it's not just the people who work in Australia or in our US offices. It's everyone who works in the factories. It's everybody who works. You know, like, you know, our product alone doesn't just support the resellers out there, but it contributes contributes to their livelihood. And we have a responsibility to do the best that we can and to make the best decisions that we can so that other people aren't negatively impacted. And you know what? Sometimes they are, but then you just have to pick yourself up, admit when you're wrong, apologise and move on. It's that humanity kind of element that I think is critical as a business owner. And um, we've got a fairly small team of 15, but I'm constantly looking at going, (laughs) there's 23 kids in that that team and and we're responsible for for their livelihoods. And that's something I never, ever kind of take for granted. I think it's really key. I didn't realise how important that was going to be when I went into this. But I think we started this business before either of us were married, before we'd had our children and... I don't know that I really understood the enormity of what we were taking on. But then I guess at the time it wasn't that enormous. It's grown into that. When was the moment that you realised, hey, this could be something big? I remember the phone call that I made to my dad to tell him that I was doing this, that I was going into this business that, you know, Ethan and I had had conversations about it and that this is something that we were going to try. And it was before we'd started the business, but I just, I remember that excitement and that pride that I had in telling him that we had this great idea and we were going to try something totally different and new. And I wasn't afraid. I don't think I knew that it was going to be massive then, but I wasn't afraid to try it. And I think that has been a large factor in our success is that we're not afraid to try things. And then it comes back to what I was saying before about we're also not afraid to cut them off if we think they may not work. Like just because you start something doesn't mean you should always see it through. You need to be responsible enough to cut it, even if you spent tons of money on it or put lots of effort into it. It's going to get a hell of a lot worse if you don't have the presence of mind to understand that it's not working. And that it's okay. Yeah. And I, I'm sure yeah. you've seen this too with plenty of businesses or business owners or just people and there's a project and it's like, well, yeah. we've spent so much time and money on it, we have to see it through. Yeah. Actually, it's okay. Yeah. And sometimes what we do is we we put a limit on it. So we say we're going to spend one more month on this or we're going to put a cap of $5,000 on this to see if it's worthwhile. And it doesn't matter what happens. If you can't make it worthwhile within that $5,000, it's you take what you can learn from it and move on to the next thing. I love that idea, mm. setting parameters around yeah. it. So they've still got an opportunity. It might work. Yeah. And but- we often do that at the beginning of a project as well. Some sort of skunk works type thing. We'll say, okay, we're going to put $10,000 to that and we're going to spend a month on it, see where we can take it and then move on. In a lot of ways, whilst you're in the industry of accessories, you're also in the technology oh, industry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me yes. a little bit about your what you've learnt and uh, your exposure into that industry. Okay, so it's very interesting being on the edge of the technology space because we're not making technical products. We're making products that support those products. Um, but we have to be very aware of what's going on in the tech space because if we're making supporting products, then we need to understand what's happening there so that we can develop useful products for the people who are taking on the technology. I can imagine if iPads mm. all of a sudden stopped tomorrow, yeah. then a whole stream of your business is That's gone. right. And we, you know, we have the same understanding of what's happening with iPads in the future that anybody 
else does. We see what happens in the news. We get the keynote speeches at the same time as everybody else. So we need to be keenly aware of what's happening in the world and be able to react as quickly as possible so that we can get product out to the market as quickly as we can. Um, and it's it's a constant balancing act, really, to be honest with you. And what we often do is we like we make our plans you know, we've, we're constantly designing and thinking of new concepts and we just then apply them as soon as we have the, the tech knowledge of what's happening. How competitive is it internationally now? Because as you said, when you yeah. started, there just was nothing in the market and you almost had to educate buyers. That's exactly what happened. Uh, in, around accessories, <laughs> yeah. right? Before you're even educating them about the product. It's yeah. actually, like you said, don't just take the bag that you're given, you have Here's a bag that's that works functional better. in your life. Yeah, exactly. Uh, now that's common place. Yeah. And so not only is the market much more competitive, but you're also on a global platform. Um, How do you deal with that that competition? Well, there there is a lot of competition, but I think it's more than, it's about more than just delivering a good product. It comes back to the relationships. It comes back to the service. It comes back to being a valuable partner. And that is as important a part of what we do as the product itself. And so very, very often, like, so we'll go into a corporate situation and we won't win the business and then they'll have a bad experience with whoever they chose to go with and they'll come to us and we'll win the business because of the service. So they've chosen a different product and then they realise, oh, actually, STM service is different and they go the extra mile and their product also stands up as well. And so we put a lot of time and effort and energy into building relationships and, and building communities around ourselves that that are key to the business. It's not just about the product. The product, I mean, my business, my core function in the business is the product. And so it kind of feels a bit weird saying that, but also, like you said before, the, like so much a part of my DNA is about relationships and community. And we have had to make the business about that as well, because otherwise you're just delivering a product and anybody can do that. How is your service different? We listen to what people need. We make the extra effort to get them what they need when they need it. And we're very honest with people. We would rather under-promise and over-deliver than the other way around. And I think some people would promise just to get their foot in the door and then work out the details later. And we just... It's so much a part of what we do to be a valuable partner that we'll do whatever we can to make things work. The other thing that's very different about... uh, the world of work at the moment is social media yes, compared to when you started. Definitely. And when you talk about relationships, uh, that's really at the core, particularly for a brand, mm. is the relationship that you have with uh, your customers, your suppliers, your people. What what role has social media played in the business? Look, it's something that we have stayed on top of because you need to do that now in business. It's just a, another stream of marketing and it's become more and more one of the most important streams of marketing, obviously. Um, But for us, you know, we didn't just jump on the social media bandwagon because that's what everybody was doing. It's always been part of what we do to make sure that we get access to the people using our product. So this just makes it easier to do that. So it, it just became another tool in our in our toolkit to be able to access people, get feedback about the product and the brand and find out what people really want. You're also changing the landscape a little bit of online shopping. And yes, I understand we through are. your augmented yeah. reality. Yeah. What is that? <laughs> <laughs> so look, AR is in its infancy and it's constantly changing. And it's been very like everyone thinks it's a cool idea, but it's been really difficult for businesses to put augmented reality into the commercial space and have it actually be effective. And I think we're at the cutting edge. Well, I don't think I know we're at the cutting edge of that. So what we're doing is everybody hears about bricks and mortar and how tough it is out there and shops are closing left, right and centre and everything's moving online. And a lot of, you know, stores are reducing the number of staff, which means that there's no one there to really support the product in store. And so what we're doing is we're implementing augmented reality solutions so that the product, all the information that you need to educate yourself about the product is on the product itself and it doesn't need that assisted sell as much. Um, So what happens is you download an app, an STM app that has all the information in it. There's a trigger on the product. And so through your phone or your iPad, but usually a phone, you trigger the augmented reality experience and it allows you to do a 360 degree view of the bag, to pack the bag with a whole lot of accessories, to see all the different pockets, because 
when you look at a bag, it's hard to see what's inside it and it's hard to understand like exactly how it works until you get to use it yourself. And so that AR experience helps the resellers. It helps like the retailers who are struggling because it gives them a better, it gives their the people who are walking into their store a better experience. It helps salespeople who are there because it gives them more information about the product. And it's bringing like a practical application of AR into retail stores that hasn't been seen before. It's so, it's that, as you say, there's real excitement around kind yeah. of um, virtual reality and augmented reality. Mm. And it's either excitement or fear. Yeah. <laughs> like it's well, the fear comes the from a lack of understanding mm. and we've found a way to make it easy to understand. So that's available now? Yes, yeah. So there's quite a few bags in our collection and some iPad cases and a phone case. And new product that we're working on now, the AR experience is built into the development of the product. Fascinating. Mm, That's really good, yeah. It's been really exciting. We've had an amazing reaction to it. And we've got this cool quirky thing where you put a sticker on someone's back, which is a trigger, and then if you hold up your phone and look at it, then it actually puts the bag on someone's back. So you can see, but not like in real life, obviously it's not there, but then on the screen you can actually see someone wearing the bag. How great is that? Yeah, it's pretty cool. So you can see whether it goes with your outfit for the day. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. And how it works from a sizing perspective on a person. It's cool. So that must be really at the forefront of of online. Yes, it is. Technology it is. as I well. I mean, I've seen other I've seen some like makeup brands using AR to, you know, put eyebrows on people and that kind of thing. But it's the first use of AR in in our space definitely, and it's one of the most practical uses of AR that we've seen in a retail setting. Can you see that there might be people coming to to you to want to know about that side of the business? Yes. Yeah. We've already had that. Yeah, I can imagine mm. that 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 could be a whole nother yeah, area. Absolutely, in, it in could be. Product and, and placement and that sort yeah. of thing as well in technology. Let me just write some notes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> go, go away, do that. Yep. <laughs> With 20 years in business, um, it's not always all smooth sailing. No. What do you have a favourite failure? And what I mean by that, has there been <sighs> a particular failure, a thing that hasn't worked that when you look back on it actually served you well, whether it was through learning, whether it was through opportunities that came out the other end that came from it? Look, I think everything served us well, like the biggest failures are the biggest teaching moments. Um, If I had to think about something in particular, I think, you know, a lot of it's a lot of it's around people, around making sure that you have the right people in the right seats. Because for Ethan and I, it's always been very important to put people around us who are smarter than us so that we can learn from them and they can help us drive the business forward. Um, and every now and then you get into a situation where you're desperate and you just put someone in a seat and because you need a body. And sometimes it's not always the right decision. Um, so, you know, being able to make those calls and just kind of moving on from them. I mean, I remember once we had a situation, it was many years ago where it was the first time we decided we were going to get like a PA for Ethan and I to share and it was a month in and I was coming home crying every night because I just could not understand. I thought, is there something wrong with me? I'm not being very efficient, like I'm not functioning properly and I went to Ethan and I said, I don't know what's going on but I feel like I'm like doing the business a disservice and he said, well, our PA is useless. Like you're doing all her work and you're doing all your work and you're trying to train her. Like we need to get rid of her and your life will be so much easier. We need to get someone great in the role and I didn't realise that that's what was going on and it took him to kind of go, you're spending so much time trying to train someone who's actually not picking it up, cut it and 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 move on. And we've had product failure stories that, you know, we've had to do recalls or we didn't have proper quality control at the factory and so you'd open a container and all of the product was just rubbish. Like, And that's been a massive learning. I mean, one of when people come to me and say, you've been building product overseas and importing it for 20 years, what's the biggest lesson related to product? I would have to say that making sure your quality control at the factory is the most, like one of the biggest focuses because once it leaves the factory, there's nothing you can do because you've approved it leaving, like you've accepted it, which means you've approved it. So having a third party, somebody that works for you, not for the factory, on the factory floor doing quality control as the product comes off the factory floor is one of the most valuable things I could suggest anybody does. Yeah, because the only other way is then when people are unwrapping it. Yeah. When they're buying it. Yeah, well, it comes into our warehouse and then we ship it out, but we don't touch every single piece. Um, It's, yeah, that's it. I mean, and then by then it's too late. Someone's had a bad experience. So that's been having someone on the ground in the factory. Yeah. 
check on that. Yeah, and getting all of our systems and processes in place to make sure that we catch issues and then we deal with them. So going back to staffing, because mm. that is um, even though it's people listening who may not be in business but might be in a leadership role where they need to recruit mm. and hire people, it's a tricky situation, mm. isn't it? Because yeah. especially that balance or that decision between I need someone in the role and but what if I get the wrong person or this doesn't feel like the right match. Where mm. have you settled on in terms of that at the moment? Would you leave a position vacant to find the right person? Um, look, somebody said to me recently that not enough people, we've been recruiting for a role recently and the person who was assisting us said not enough people use that um, probation period properly um, and that you should never be afraid to use that probation period because being in the wrong role is bad, like it's bad for them as well. It's not good for the business, it's not good for them, they're not going to grow in their career and it's not good for the people in your business who aren't benefiting from somebody who really fits. So... Would I, yes, I, sh- I would probably leave a role empty in order to get the right person in the role and fill it in another way. Or potentially, yeah, I like that, yeah. that concept of using that three months and mm. making the call early yeah. rather than just kind of crossing fingers and hope <laughs> it might get better yeah. for both of you. Yeah. Being in business, and I understand you've got three kids yes. as well, mm. uh, I'm not I'm always kind of hesitant around the balance word, but <laughs> <laughs> what has helped you not lose sight of yourself? I lose sight of myself all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, um, when he came in and said he said, bed, yeah. I can just sleep. <laughs> I know, no. That was probably my clue. Yes, no. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I do lose sight of myself mm. all the time. Um, what helps you come back? <laughs> I Well, I was listening to your first life hack a few days ago and I really love that because it made me realise that I've put these little things in place every day that are, they're not big and they don't cost a lot and they're not, they're not things that are so insurmountable that you have to make a massive effort to include them in your life, but they're things that really set me off on a good path in the morning. I exercise as much as I can, but it, it's, it's never, you know, it's not always the things that I want to do. Like I would love to do yoga every day, but I don't have the luxury Same. of being able so. to do that. <laughs> so I do CrossFit and it's great. It gives me the energy that I need and it sets me off on a good path. Um, you know, I have a favourite cafe that I stop in at every single morning. Like it's a religious thing for me because being in that space even if it's for 10 minutes while I wait for a takeaway, sets me up on a good path. I listen to podcasts in the car on the way to work because, you know, it, it, it gives me that separation between what's happening at home and what's happening in the office and it just gives me a bit of clarity. And when I don't do those things, I feel it. I feel like I get frazzled. I feel like I add too much in. I feel like, you know, I haven't taken the time. And those things, that it's not a lot of time, but those are the things that kind of, it, they give me like the energy and the breath that I need to then put, put the energy into the day. And it doesn't always work, but every day is a new opportunity to start again and and try and do it a bit better. How do you start your day? So I wake up at, um, most days I wake up at 5.30 and we have an office in San Diego. So by 5.30, they've already worked two thirds of their day, especially at this time of year with the time zones. So I do a quick scan of my emails and our internal messaging system just to see if there's anything I can shoot off that they can then use to action straight away. Um, I have already set out my clothes the night before because if I don't set them out, I will not go to the gym. It has to be foolproof, so everything is out. Um, and then my clothes to wear as well are packed in a bag because I shower at the office. So I get up at 5.30, I do a quick scan of all my messages, I jump in the car, go to the gym, do 40 minutes, and then I go to my, my special cafe. I sit there. If I've got time, I'll have breakfast there. If not, then I get takeaway. Um, I do my my podcast listening in the car on the way, um, and then I get to the office and I because I've done those five minutes of seeing what's going on overseas, when I get to the office, I've only got about two hours at that point to then communicate with the guys in the US office. And so I start my day with them. I do whatever they need or get involved in whatever meetings need to be done so that they can do what they need before the end of their day. And then they are able to hand off to me so that while they're having dinner and, you know, sleeping, then we're in Australia, we're actioning whatever needs to be actioned. It's a it's a good system. There are lots of challenges about having offices mm. around the world, but we've found a really good way to kind of use that curvature and, and support each other in each in the other side's downtime. Because otherwise it's 24 hours, so yeah. they can actually have a sense that someone else is taking care yes, of this. Exactly. So I can actually have time off and, exactly. and the same for yourself as well. Yeah. 
Yeah, critical to have that, those times in the morning and and yeah. to get that kind of rhythm and routine. I'm exactly the same with you, yeah. clothes out. If I if my <laughs> clothes are not out, I don't, I don't go. go. I just yeah. don't go to the point where my husband will even say, I'll go to bed and I'll go, oh, I might get up for a run. He goes, well, you won't. You won't because your clothes, your clothes aren't, aren't out. out. <laughs> Everybody knows so, that. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. right, of course I won't. Mm. <laughs> so that ability to kind of find those rhythms and yeah. routines, but, I, yeah, particularly in an international. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not around in the mornings for my family. My husband saw that morning side of the day out completely and then I pick them up from school and take them to their afternoon activities and do the drop-offs and help with homework and that kind of thing. So I get that tough end of the day when they're tired and ratty. (laughs) (laughs) How old are the kids? Uh, The youngest one's four, the middle one's ten and then the oldest is twelve. Mm. Busy, plenty of after-school activities. Yeah, lots. (laughs) (laughs) The poor little one, he's never really been able to do much because... The others are so much older than him and so he, he's like, I want to do basketball, I want to do tennis and we're like, next year, next year. You know? <laughs> He'll have siblings mm. to play with yeah, by the yeah. time. Yeah, he'll be, be fine. All totally fine. Mm. When it comes to being, I think, in business but also being able to achieve the next goal, whatever that yeah. is, I think it's really critical to have people around you, mm. um, almost like your tribe of supporters for me, I think it's critical to have, I almost see people falling into three categories. You need your champions, people who have been there before um, that might guide you. And mm. When you're going through a big fast growth kind of business or a business that's growing, they, that can change as that growth kind of changes. Mm. You need to have your cheer squad, so your people who are absolutely in your corner, they're raving fans of you. Whatever you do, they'll just go, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, and then you, I believe you need to have your challenges as well, so people who will actually challenge you, who will pull you up, who will yeah. actually say, hang on, you you didn't do that well or you need yeah. to change this. Who have been the people in for you that have been part of that tribe that have kind of helped oh, you move I forward? so many. I really do. I'm very fortunate. I have a big family. I have a lot of good friends. I've lived in Sydney my whole life and, and I've lived in this area. Um, and I have a lot of really great people that I work with. And I, I mean, I, you know, there are a few that rise to the top, but I think I've done a good job of surrounding myself with with exactly what you've said, those three types of people who who support no matter what, who question you and make sure that you're that you question yourself. And um, and I think, you know, to me, community is such an important part of my world and my life. I like to make sure that whatever I do and wherever I am that I'm surrounded by community and I include my family in that. Um, and to the point where, a couple of years ago, I kind of spun off a little bit and and started a not-for-profit that is basically focused around community and mentoring for women. Um, and so now I do that on the side of STM. We, I, my, I have a partner in it, her name's Bobby, and we call it our after eight job because we basically meet at night after 8pm. And um, and it's it's incredible to see, like to, to have the ability to bring people together who support each other and question each other and push each other and are there to lift each other up. Yeah, I was going to ask you, it's called Mentor Mm. Mentor Walks. Walks. Yeah. And what's the concept behind it? So the way that it works is it's um, we bring together these incredible women who are highly accomplished and very experienced as the mentors and then we take applications from women who want to be mentees who are basically either mid-career women or looking for a career change or just have some challenges that they want to workshop and we bring them together once a month in an informal walking environment where we pair one or match one mentor with two to three mentees. We ask everyone to come with a burning question and then basically the mentor uses the burning question as the kickoff point for a group discussion as you walk for an hour. And it's the power of these women walking together that helps people address their challenges and support each other and share each other's experiences. So it happens once a month in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane. And um, it's, it's amazing. I absolutely love it. I love being able to bring together these people. I love the fact that my 20 years of experience have exposed me to so many different people that I can then bring into this. And so many people that I know are in a position where they want to now just start sharing what they've learned and supporting people. And then I love the fact that these up and coming leaders are are coming to us and, and looking for the guidance and support and that we can provide a situation where they get that. 
And do it out walking. Yeah. I think. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's something to be said for the oxygen and the movement. And also, like, the some of the women that we have involved in the program as mentors are incredibly impressive. And they're all wonderful women who are very generous, but they could be intimidating to somebody who doesn't know them. Um, not that they would ever intentionally be that way, but that ability to walk side by side instead of sitting face to face takes a lot of that pressure off and allows a lot more relaxed conversation. The sense of we're doing this. Yeah. We're doing it together. Yeah. We're having a conversation together, yeah. walking together. That can be, I love that outlet. And for anyone that is interested, you know, please look up mental yeah. walks because I think that's really critical. But there may be people who are not in those cities mm. uh, or just not around in those times. But I certainly know p- plenty of people that like the idea or would love to kind of have a mentor but haven't mm. taken that first step or not even sure where to start. Yeah. What's worked for you? And what would you recommend? Be direct. Just ask. You never know what's going to happen. And it is amazing how how giving and generous these people are who have had experience and they want to share. I mean, a lot of the time people only say no because they literally do not have the time, not because they don't want to share. And so finding a way to... um, Finding a way to put parameters around what you're asking for them. So if I want to ask someone a question, I always say, do you have five minutes to talk at this time? So don't throw it out and leave it with them. I'll send an email and say, can I call you at two o'clock on Wednesday? I'll take five minutes of your time. And that then they know exactly like what it's going to take from them and how they can fit it in with what they're doing. If you ask something very open-ended, um, it's it, people are more likely to say no. And the other thing as well is um, be humble about it. Like don't, humble's probably not the right word, but don't take advantage of people's generosity. Just like, I probably have to edit this bit. I'm trying to work out how to say it. Um, So, I mean, in mentor walks, we have this idea and it's very important to us that the mentors are giving their time and you have this one hour with them. They are under no obligation to give you their contact details, their phone number or email address. Take advantage of the time that you've got um, because they want to give, but they can only give so much because they literally do not have the time to do any more. Don't then you know, take advantage of it or try and sell them something or like don't like understand what the boundaries are. Take what you can, but also give. Like understand that even if you're at the beginning of your career, you've got something to give as well. So what is it that you can give them? Can you donate an hour of your time to a charity that they support? Like that's what you're giving them so that they can give you their information and experience. Can you, do you have a product that you can give them and say, thanks, we re- I really appreciate what you've done for me. Like they're not always going to take it, but just the idea that you don't just want to take, but that you're actually willing to share as well. That that's important. I think it's important. That's what keeps that relationship yeah. going. And and for really me critical. as well, like I hate the idea of networking because I feel like when you network you're just take take taking. Oh, I feel like everyone's selling and no one's buying. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I don't even, like networking is just not something that I talk about. It is about building a community. What can I give you? I always look at what I can give someone and then what can I learn from being in your orbit? Do they have to be in your industry? No, definitely not. Definitely what would you not. look for in for a um, good mentor, for someone who's starting out? I think somebody who's had a lot of different varieties of experience is good. Somebody who looks like they've evolved along the way because it means that they've understood challenges and then being able to take that on board and then use them. Um, and somebody who is prepare to listen to you and not just push what they've learned on you because just like there, I find that it's much more valuable when I'm mentoring, I find it's much more valuable to share my experience that's related to what they've experienced than it is to tell them what I think of their situation. When I tell them what I think, I'm judging their situation and then putting my knowledge and my thoughts into what they should be doing. It's much more valuable if I say, okay, well, you've had a challenge with a staff member. This is what we did in a similar situation because they can see what worked or what didn't work for me. And then they can apply that if it, if it applies to them. Um, but otherwise I'm just kind of giving ideas and, and judging, not in a negative way, but it's still, I have to assess their situation. And I, I don't know, I think sharing experiences is a lot more powerful than telling them what I think they should do. And I've learned that because um, I'm a member of EO, the Entrepreneurs' mm, Organisation, yes, and yeah. that is one of the big, big tenets of EO is to share experience. Don't, don't say what you think. 
because you don't always know the context. Yeah, I think absolutely. is what happens in that. You'll go, well, I, I think you should do this, but yeah. actually their context might be very, very I just find different. that it works in every situation. <laughs> I agree. Mm. I agree. It works with kids. It yes. works, with, it yes. works with family. It works with all Definitely. of the above. Stop and listen and yeah. find out what's going on for them first yeah. and then get permission to share, but take yeah. it or leave it if you, if you want to from there. When you mentioned before about your mentor walks, you said that they have to come with a burning question. Yes. With the next piece of growth for STM... Do you have a burning question about what you need to know, what's going to help you with that next step? I think a lot of, I mean, a, a crystal ball into the what's happening with technology would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Failing that, I keep coming back to relationships and for us getting the right people in place in different regions, like geographic regions, is key to our growth. We have great product and we're always developing new product. Um, but having the the conduits and the ability to actually go out into the market and have people understand what that product is a key. So I think... Um, you know, building relationships in different geographic regions um, would be like what's the best way to kind of bridge cultural gaps and not just kind of try and come in and force the way that we do business in different markets? Like how do, how do people – I guess my burning question would be what is the best way to approach a new cultural market um, and learn about them so that you can then shift the way that you educate about your product and your business? Because it's going to be different in different yeah. cultures and different yeah. contexts yeah. and what's going on for them. Mm. Sit and listen, I reckon, yeah. where you, you know, yeah. answer to your own kind of question. Yeah, definitely. The Come Full Circle, the name of this podcast is called Standout Life. Yeah. If I were to offer that up to you, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? It definitely means to do things that have an impact that is outside of just your small circle. Like what can I do that that assists, not assists, but what can I do that supports people more than just the like the four walls that I live in? So having a standout life is really about sharing my experiences and understanding how what I can do to help other people. Well, thank you for sharing your experience and all the best for the next 20 years. Thank you very much. And thank you so much for having me. I did, even though we have this massive microphone in my face, I did actually forget (laughs) that it was there and I felt like we were just sitting there by the fire chatting. Let's go and have a cuppa. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much for having me here. Thank you. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life.